Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, your host for number 60. And I know, I know that I said number 60 was going to be a podcast about UFOs, but instead, I've got a question for everybody listening out there. What kind of mountain biker do you want to be and why? So the simple way to answer that would probably be to say trail rider or I'm a downhiller or I'm one of the four or five other sub niches of our niche sport. But I think there's a lot more to discuss than overly simplified titles or the style of biker riding. Now, as per usual, I have Mike Casimir here, who will always be the unpaid intern in my heart, even if he did just get a promotion. Because what what kind of rider are you calling yourself today? What what buzzword are you using? I don't know. Today, maybe just today, I'm going to be a trail rider because I'm going to go on a trail ride later on. All right. could change, tomorrow, I could be all-mountain rider, maybe. I was hoping you were going to say all-mountain because that's Brian's favorite phrase. I know. I don't want to talk about it. That's what I mostly am. But okay. today, I'm going to go trail biking. Uh-huh. How much of your love of the, the all-mountain term is that I don't like it? That has helped me love it even more. Yes. I thought it's so. also the correct term, but we'll get, we'll yeah, get to that works. at some other point. Uh-huh. <laughs> Kaz, I was on a monster ride last week on my cross-country bike, and a thought occurred to me mid-cramp that 25-year-old Levy, he'd be wearing 510s, a full day in his suit, and riding a downhill race bike, and not wanting anything to do with the bib shorts that I was wearing, or 100-millimeter travel bikes, and all that climbing. 20-year-old me would probably have the same thoughts, but he was riding a 45-pound steel hardtail and probably sessioning some ridiculous drop that eventually broke my ankles. 15-year-old me was on a road bike, so he didn't get a say. Point being, there's been a lot of different kinds of riding for me in my past, and that's probably true of a lot of other people, including you guys as well. There's been a lot of evolutions, whether they were conscious decisions or not. And maybe some of those changes were the result of where you live, who you ride with, your trails, or whether maybe you watched a video of Palmer when you were 12 years old and boom, you knew from then on you were only going to be a downhill racer. So lots to talk about, and to do that, I've also got Alicia Leggett here and Brian Park on the podcast today. Alicia, what mountain bike buzzword would describe the type of rider that you are? Hey, I'm going to go ahead and claim all mountain, just because it sounds cool. I want all the mountains. I'm very indecisive, so I'm, I'm going to pick all of it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Brian, what, what type of rider are you? Uh, I'm an all-mountain rider. No, just kidding. Partial mountain rider. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite marketing things is when brands try and create new genres of mountain biking. And like, Levy, I know you've done this too, so you're not... By accident. <laughs> I was making fun and it accidentally happened. <laughs> I, I kind of thought that this entire podcast was a setup for you to, to somehow shine the downcountry. No, I don't like talking about show. it. Yeah. It makes well, me feel funny. Don't. But can anybody think of a good brand created genre like over mountain or super xc or free ride made by cannondale yeah i guess yeah free ride there we go who is super xc i don't want to talk about it yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> i like that can we do super xc as a thing we should bring that back because we could wear capes does it <laughs> yes okay. Okay, hey, Kaz, what is your super xc superpower <laughs> My cape would be uh, well, special. We had a sports cape review one time on Pink Bike around April Fool's, I think. Let's bring that back. <laughs> oh, I, I need to find that. <laughs> yeah, I think Brad Walton wrote about the sports cape. He might have made a video. So, yeah, we'll bring that back capes special. and Super XC. So we can do a Super XC field test. We have, like, special thing where we can use the superpowers of the bikes. 
there's a lot of potential. We just I feel like Kaz's super XC cape would be like crocheted. He would have made no, it. It needs himself. to catch the wind. It needs to billow behind me. It can't be crocheted. It needs to be of like a space age polymer. My Ooh. super XC superpower would be invisibility, and I would invoke that anytime I can't unclip and fall over, or <laughs> when I'm wearing lycra, so on and so forth. Many times during a ride, probably. <laughs> You're just Did invisible just, from the waist down. Yeah. <laughs> Could it just be like any other ride with Levy where it's like, oh, Levy's riding on his own. Yeah. <laughs> I what what category would the slim donut, your slim donut hardtail? Is that a cross country bike, Brian? <sighs> that is a down country bike, okay. I think. Well, we're gonna jump into all that stuff, but first, today, Kaz is gonna read the news. I'm gonna start with the Pink Bike State of the Sports survey that just came out today as we're recording this. So basically we record or sorry. We surveyed almost 200 of the world's top XC, EWS, DH, and slope-style freeride athletes. I, I didn't get the questions. Nobody asked me. I know. Sorry. It must be in the mail. If you check your mail, it's a... Uh, I have it. We sent it. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so they were surveyed on topics including athlete pay, physical and mental health support, media, opportunities and equality, racing regulations, and more. Basically just trying to get a general overview of what some of the top athletes, uh, what the state of the sport is for them. And this project was led by James Murthway, Henry Quinney, and Alicia that we have here. And we'll have articles rolling out the rest of the week that include the results of the survey. And at the end of it, there's going to be a big data dump so everybody can dig into the numbers themselves and try to figure out things and do their own pie charts and bar graphs and all that. What are we big trying to figure out with this, Kaz? What's the, what's the whole point of this survey? We were trying to figure out how many hundreds of dollars you could make by being a professional athlete. Oh, Up shit. to 200, it turns out. <laughs> I, I would have thought it was tens, tens of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the big thing is just to add a little bit more transparency so you can kind of get an idea of what some of these athletes are, are making or not making and just kind of a, an overview. It's always been kind of a almost like a secret topic that nobody likes to talk about. So uh, this was an anonymous survey to kind of protect some of the people from getting to needing to really go out on a limb and explain their full salary breakdown. But uh, based on what we got, it looks like the data is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, athlete pay, we launched today with, with the athlete pay story and it's probably the most like explosive, I guess. But we asked a lot of questions about a lot of other topics within racing because we've been talking for the last year about this huge bike boom and you know, glowing editorial after glowing editorial about the state of the industry and that kind of stuff. And in that racing has definitely gotten lost a bit, the racing and the athletes and the people that push the sport, the people that are making bikes a lot better and yeah, generally making my Sundays better. So, um, we wanted to kind of shift the focus back onto them a bit. Yeah. I think it's cool to see. And, you know, especially compared to other sports where, you know, football, everybody knows what everybody makes or, you know, major sports like that. So it's kind of nice just to have a little bit of an idea of what some of these uh, men and women are making out there or not making, which is what it seems like. We'll go we'll go deeper on the results of the survey in an upcoming sort of special podcast just about that stuff. Next bit of news, we've got Elliot Jackson and Tracy Hanna are joining the Red Bull World Cup commentating team. So Tracy Hanna retired last year. Uh, so she's now going to be joining Rob Warner in the commentary booth to cover women's World Cup downhill racing. And then Elliot Jackson is going to be in there. So race fans should be excited for even better coverage when racing starts again. I think both of those are both Elliot and Tracy are super knowledgeable. And I think that's going to be a nice, nice addition to have, um, have them join Rob, Claudio and Lauren Smith on the commentating team. Next up, moving from racing, we've got Forrestal. They revealed their new Hydra downhill and Scion trail EMTBs. 
Um, we heard about Forrestal it's last year, maybe a little before that. Mm-hmm. So they're planning on building as much as possible in-house, like carbon frames, motor, and their uh, and battery system. So that's kind of their, their own thing. The Scion is their first trail bike and it has 150 millimeters of rear travel. It's got their Alpha Box carbon monocoque frame and twin levity linkage driven single pivot suspension design. That sounds fancy. And I, I think that Scion is one of those, like it's a lighter weight e-bike similar to the Specialized you tested a while back, isn't it, Kaz? Yeah, it's kind of more in line, at least the the like the Levo SL style, where it's a little bit lighter, a little less power, but then the whole the total system weight is uh, is a lot lighter than a traditional e bike. So. Yeah, so it looks interesting. And they've got the, yeah, it's a Scion trail bike, and then the Hydra is there. Actually, they have a downhill bike. It's 170 millimeters of travel, but it does have a dual crown fork, 29 inch wheels. Yeah, so it looks interesting. It's nice that they're kind of we you know we saw teasers before, but now it looks like they're entering production. I think we'll probably try to get one of these in for testing later this year. The the basic frame lines remind me of an older GT. Do you guys see it? Yeah, I think on, I can see that. Yeah, on the downhill I mean, bike or on the trail bike? Yeah. Uh, both of them. I see it on the downhill bike. Yeah, yeah, the downhill bike more than. But great looking yeah, thing. We'll so next, we also had oh, we had a little behind the scenes video went up this week of all the uh, the different real MTB contenders and Braga Vestavix. He had that fan favorite X Games edit, and it's kind of neat to see a little bit of insight on how hard he worked on getting that video out. Those guys are digging in the wintertime, brushing snow and ice off the stunts, and his dad and his grandpa helped him out, which I wish I had so, a dad and grandpa to help me build stunts. <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> he just yelled at me. He didn't help me build anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. he said that, I'm stoked we're all here alive, was his uh, his quote out of that video. So it's a good, so I, good thing. I watched this, and one thing that I was surprised by was how low-key Braga seems like you watch that video you watch this video and you're just like it just it looks like a bmx video from like the 2000s when people were i mean they're still being crazy but it just has that like raw aggressive thing to it and then you talk to him and he he almost looks like he'd be soft-spoken you know yeah and he's pretty young isn't he Anyone know how old is he? he i feel like 22 or 24 did you see his beard I know he's a Viking. <laughs> like, yeah, he has more hair yeah. just in his beard than we'll ever have on our face in our entire lives combined. <laughs> yeah, if I had never shaved ever, I still wouldn't have a beard as cool as his. So. Maybe that's where all his yeah. powers are. Could be. He's got Viking beard power. That's yeah. cool. I, Once he gets I really, a cape, it's gonna. Yeah, I really just watched that again to see that like massive gap to bash guard thing on the rock. <laughs> crazy yeah, i like that <laughs> we I just could have love... a new testing thing like instead of huck the flat we can do like bottom bracket case test <laughs> just <laughs> shotgun not me yeah, yeah not jason <laughs> somewhere just got so scared yeah. he doesn't know why he just had a shiver <laughs> it's only it's only 30 feet to 50 50 bottom bracket case jason come on yeah, toughen up. you don't even need to land it you just have to smash <laughs> yeah you don't I love right the, away the mega huck of his is just like mega huck into swamp pond thing yeah like they great. thought about the landing but then after that they're just like eh, whatever you'll be fine <laughs> yeah i think another thing to mention with all these huge hits is if you look at the transitions they're not long boys and girls no <laughs> those things are like he's going off this stuff and he has to have his speed pretty pretty dang dialed you know, there's 300 foot gap to the trannies as long as a bike. Not good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's yeah. really cool. Moving on from that, this is the opposite of what he was doing. We had a bike check with Matt Lackins, uh, fully rigid Stooge Cycles Dirt Bomb Enduro Race Bike. So this is a race to happen over in the UK. And he decided he doesn't need suspension in the front or in the back. So 
according to the rider. He says it's all about function. He wants to be able to ride it to and from races, which is kind of cool. Sorry, can we just, I just want to stop. <laughs> can you read those first few words about that quote again? <laughs> this build is all about function. Okay, yeah, stop it again. I'm upset. <laughs> he wants to be able to ride it to and from races. He wants it reliable. He's got short cage, 10 speed derailleur and oh, that's 28 hole like rims. That. Yeah, I, I didn't say I liked it. I just said it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> He rode 60 kilometers to the race, and then he did a 60-kilometer ride back home after the race. So. Kids, just because Levy says that you shouldn't use a lockout switch doesn't mean you can't get a bike with a, without a lockout switch and then use that to ride your rigid bike to and from the race if you really want to ride to and from the race. I like I, this guy. Do you I like, like this, it. Levy? He's, yeah. doing, he's doing his own thing. He doesn't give a shit what anybody says. You know he's better than you. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ed Fitter, too. <laughs> well... It's not for me, but uh, I love the idea of riding to a race and riding home. I think it's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah, he's yeah. I would do it on that bike. No, eleven twenty-eight tooth cassette. That's tall. Yeah, we've also got like a four-tooth chainring. It's super small. It's not that small. It's like a thirty-two tooth chainring. Well, mine's a forty. Yeah. But you have a 52 cassette. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Speaking so, of massive watts. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of massive watts, let's move on to, to Levy's buddy, Nino Scherter. This, this, new, this news will make you happy. He's now a Bosch e-bike system ambassador. And according to the press release, Nino will be able to access remote rides that are typically unrealistic on analog bikes. So What? I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't think, think that... <laughs> yeah, Nino can go wherever he wants with just his legs. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I thought too. It'd be, I can't imagine the ride where he was like, I wish I had an e-bike because my legs aren't working. I don't think that happens to Nino. I, yeah. I mean, what about, what about the motor cutoff, Kaz? So I was riding with uh, a pro, I just, we just happened to come across each other and we were climbing on this road and the road kind of dipped down and his motor on his e-bike cut off and I dropped him like a hot rock. Like he was standing still, <laughs> like he sucked. <laughs> And then the motor, then the road went back up. His motor kicked on. He left me for dust. Wouldn't Nino's motor just be cutting out all the time? He doesn't need all that power. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can have fun on an e-bike. You can ride up crazy technical stuff and you're not going to be, the motor isn't going to be an issue that cut out when you're riding up. Not on things. the trails. Not yeah. on the technical trails is what you're saying. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's just kind of fun. I mean, it's fine. Like he's, he can promote e-bikes if he wants to, but I think it's funny the way they frame it as if it's going to help him. Like he needed help with being a, an athlete. I will say that I'm sure that he actually enjoys riding an e-bike. You know, there's a lot of cynicism and and rightful poking fun at the at the press release and and that. But I bet he has fun on an e-bike. Well, yeah, I'm sure he does. Yeah. Commenters, I go with e the commenters, they were nasty. They were yeah, <laughs> they and were. like I understand that. Like it makes it it was a silly press release, but guaranteed he has fun on e-bikes and uh, is stoked for the sponsorship and. Um, we'll probably, I will probably see him race some e-bikes in a couple of years as that whole weird thing develops. Yeah. I hope that I doesn't know. happen. But uh, yeah. But you no. probably will. And he'll probably want to do it. Maybe. Yeah. You know what, Nino, Nino, I know you're listening. Levy doesn't, <laughs> Levy doesn't want you to race e-bikes. So maybe you should reconsider that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. No, he can be an ambassador. Just don't race him. Then right. E-bike racing is silly. E-bike riding, e-bike riding is fun. So, yeah. I did like the comment that I said that he's just going to mount the motor backwards. Just use it for extra resistance training. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> I think that was the best take on it. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. He's got a, a reverse e-bike, so it makes it harder because normal bikes are too easy for him. That might you be what he should do. He it. should unrestrict his. 
just so he has the Probably, motor. Well, yeah, all maybe ambassadors get like secret cheat codes so they can go even faster. Do you know how to do that, Kaz? Not that we're supposed to, but do you know how? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how. I'm, I haven't looked into it. They go hey. fast enough for me. I haven't ever been like, I wish I could go faster up this hill. Like I, you can crash. I have had so many uphill crashes. It's plenty fast for me. And I turn it off usually going downhill or put it in eco mode. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Anyways, moving on from e-bikes and superhuman athletes. Uh, we are still rolling out field trip content. And we finished the hardtail hard section. So it was the stoic versus the centier versus the two-stroke versus the fluid versus the growler. Those are all our value hardtails. Levy, are you excited to not ride hardtails for a little bit? Or you, do, you, do you want one? Do you want, uh, want your own both, now? Both, to be honest. Like I'm 50% that sucked less than I thought it would. And 50%, nah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I, I just heard you wax poetic about fully rigid. So I think we know where we're going for the next one. Oh, I said it's neat. I it's definitely not for me. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I had a lot of fun on those bikes, and in the video, Sarah and I kind of break down the the best and worst traits of each one, and we talk about sort of where each bike might be best suited, the terrain and the type of rider. Um, and I should also say, like the being able to ride the bikes back to back, it really really helps with that comparison. Um, like we're literally riding, you know, three, sometimes four different bikes a day. And it's, uh, it makes those videos a lot better. I, I was just going to ask that, like, I know in the past, and I think when we first talked about doing some more hardtail stuff, one of the big concerns we all had was, well, shit, they're hardtails. They all, all ride kind of the same. It's so hard to tell, you know, truly comparative stuff apart. Was that the case? Uh, they pretty much all beat me up the same. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, they. I'm just joking. They, they are. They were vastly different, but that was also a conscious decision on our part for this value field test with the hardtails. Mm-hmm. Um, the Norco and and, and uh, a couple of the others were like sort of similarish intentions, but the outliers were the Growler on one end of the spectrum, the aggressive, and then that BMC on the other end. So I, I feel like they were they had such different uses that it was mm-hmm. it was eye opening, yeah, to to ride them all back and forth like that. Um, I think in hindsight, I might want to like include like two of the same kind of bikes, like we did with the Norco and the Vitus. So like maybe the BMC and what's that specialized entry level XC bike? Is it the Chisel? Chisel, Chisel, I think. Yeah, like that kind of thing. And then the Growler maybe versus I don't know, Kaz. Something, something mm-hmm. hard to yeah, There's like the Hanzo, Hanzo yeah. or the Torrent or something. They're in the same, something like that. Along. But this was just super interesting to see the bikes of sort of different intentions being ridden back to back, and it was yeah, really underlined the differences. It was neat. Alicia, yeah, I know you watched all those hardtail videos. Is there one hardtail that sort of appeals to you? You're in Montana right now. I'm in Montana. Is there a hardtail that appears appeals to you more than others because of? The terrain and how you ride? Um, I think the Growler's awesome value. I think a slack hardtail is such a great balance for people not looking to get uphill KOMs or whatever and win cross-country races, which I'm not. And just for the type of riding we have here in Montana, there's so much like high alpine all-day adventure riding that I think such a versatile bike would really have a place. Yeah, I think that's the case for a lot of us. Brian? Now that these things are all out, is there one of them that appeals to you more aside from that damn growler? Yeah, that BMC looks awesome and is more in line with what I think. Like, yeah, hardtails for me are more cross-country machines. And that's yeah. their, their usefulness for me kind of cuts off around that 120 mil fork kind of range. Yeah. 
that okay. I mean that said, like the whole point of this was to have value bikes and that are an awesome entry point for mountain biking for people who just have twelve hundred bucks to spend or fifteen hundred bucks to spend or whatever. And for that purpose, Growler does look awesome. All right, moving on. Let's go to the questions. The first one is about brakes. This one's from Ikathis13. He says, given that you're a critical of the brakes on these bikes, he's talking about the field trip bikes. What would you say is the best budget slash cheap expensive brake set that actually works? Kaz, what do you think? I know Shimano, it's really just, you guys are close to having good brakes on those bikes, but you're kind of like two. Didn't feel down. like it. Yeah, I know. Well, that's the thing. It's, I think the model numbers, Shimano has a lot of numbers and I can't keep them all straight, but it's basically like the Dior level four piston brakes or two piston brakes actually work pretty well. Um, it's, it's when you stop going down to like Alivio and Acera, those are the ones where you're getting those resin only rotors and pads and the big goofy brake levers. So I think at the Dior level, um, I think retail is not that expensive and that would be a, a decent upgrade and you'd be fine with those. Mm-hmm. Brian, Mr. Trick Stuff Dear Tessimus, whose brakes can stop a train. Do you have any brake suggestions that don't cost $900 an end? <laughs> uh, I will say that I'm utterly ruined on brakes. Like... If I'm ever not in the bike industry, I will probably spend full retail on on stupidly expensive and powerful brakes, and I'll hate myself for it, but it is what it is. Um, I don't have a super cheap option um, to suggest, but I will say that you can get those Hayes Dominions on sale in a few places, and I think they're an incredibly underrated brake. They're really, really good. Yeah, I've used those Hayes, and I was very, very impressed by them. Um, I think one thing that I will say, a bit of a disclaimer, is that there is terrible consistency in a lot of the brakes that are out there right now. So, you know, we'll get a test bike in, and the brakes might work good, they might not work good. Let's let's say they work great, but I can I know three people that have you know those brakes that just hate them that are super inconsistent or they've been unreliable, and honestly that's been my impression across the board even with some of the expensive brakes. Um, you know I would just like to see more consistency, and I guarantee you that many other riders out there have had terrible experiences with whatever brake that you swear by and vice versa. So it's it's tricky to recommend that stuff. Okay, next question. Uh, Brian, I'm going to get you to answer this one first. This one's from JF94. He says, what matters more for stability at speed, longer reach or a longer wheelbase? Ignoring that a bike's wheelbase will eventually increase as the reach gets longer. So he just wants you to forget that part. Would the bike's wheelbase matter just as much, if not more than reach, when it comes to stability at speed? Brian, what do you think? I think we've talked about this before, where the mm-hmm. obvious answer is to run a really short reach and really slack head tube angle, so you get the same effective wheelbase. <laughs> Best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. I think we've hey, how long? About how long before. is your effective top tube, Brian? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. I honestly, I'm not sure why uh, JF94. Why you're asking me? I'm I'm not really the guy to ask on this. I think that bottom bracket. I'm only kind of joking here, but I feel like bottom bracket height gets left out of the stability equation a little bit sometimes i don't think it matters in in stability i think you know really stable high bottom bracket and a really stable low bottom bracket in the corners you might like the cornering of the lower bottom bracket but i think it's really your your wheelbase like you can like this guy was talking about he was focusing on the reach but really if you had a you can have a wide range of reach numbers if you have a slack head angle and 
long to moderately long mm-hmm. chain stays. You know, the reach doesn't matter as much, I wouldn't say, where you, if you get that wheelbase by the slack head angle and chain stays, I think you'll still get the stability. You know, it's all one part of things. It's hard for just to pull one number out, but. I think we saw that a little bit with when Mondrakers started pushing the the reach numbers forward and they didn't go crazy on their head tube angles as much as just lengthen the reach and we saw a lot of stability um even even though they weren't the slackest out there yeah i think you can do that i think the handling suffers if you with the reach like the human body can only Mm -hmm. reach your handlebars and still be in the right position over the bike so i think at a certain extent once reach gets to a certain point where that's like the human limit as far as fit goes then you can make the head angle slacker to gain even more wheelbase like i think for head angles we're not we're starting to see more bikes in that 63 realm. I'd imagine that next year or two, we'll still see like that 62.5 start creeping down. I don't think we'll get Grim Donut, but I definitely could be wrong still. But I think that these days it's easy to make a 63.5 or even 62.5 bike feel pretty manageable, even on not super gnarly terrain. It obviously feels best on gnarly terrain. But Do you guys think that the the fears about wheelbase were just always misplaced or has our riding changed or our expectations on our rides speeds what's what's changed i think that i don't think it was misplaced i think there's no arguing that like a a slacker longer bike can be more difficult still to get through things but other things have changed as well with geometry to help it help the bike in those regards when it's maybe not in its ideal setting um also we should also say that like I think the pros outweigh the cons. You know, I know this guy who wrote this article where he tested uh, a relatively short large and then a longer large, and he swore that the shorter bike was the better bike that he preferred. And that guy was wrong, hundred percent wrong. <laughs> it was was, that first... guy a, was he in a Ripley? Was he in an Ibis Ripley? I, I don't know. I don't recall actually. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. remember. <laughs> Wait, because he's really never been wrong before. I uh, never, never, yeah. exactly. This was um, one time. But I think that. We're seeing the benefits and you can't argue, Kaz, like, you know, I have that mon- that short travel Mondraker that has geo that, you know, wouldn't be at a place a few years ago on a much longer travel bike. And I get up all the things. I climb up all the things because it's worth it. You know, it, it may be a little a different approach here or there, but coming back down the stuff, that bike rides like it has way more than 100 mils of travel. Yeah. Cause I still think the answer is to run 145 millimeter cranks and just scrape your bottom bracket along the ground. <laughs> uh, no, uh-huh. having pedaled the Grim Donut up many hills. <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. It is so bad. <laughs> you just need flatter pedals that are integrated into your into your shoes. Yeah, ultra low strap. They just slide. Pedals. They slide inside the shoe under your insole. Like, Levy, does does the circus music start playing every time you ride the Grim Donut for you too? every time you paddle it yeah i feel more stupid than usual when i'm on the grim donut to be honest (laughs) (laughs) okay we got another geometry question this one is from zwa2 he says mike levy i'm curious what your thoughts are on the size medium bikes with the 450 mil reaches you've been riding for this test he's talking about the field trip the value bike field trip stuff it seems like over the past one to two years he says you and casimir have really settled into enjoying large size bikes with 470 to 480 mil reaches major drawbacks or advantages you notice regarding smaller reaches uh kaz do you want to go first and then i'll jump in um well yeah i mean you've been the run you can kind of go in between sizes it seems like yeah. you're riding mediums or large i'm a little taller than you so lately i've been comfortable with the size large which yeah like this guy says 470 to 480 mil i've been riding a comments a lot to 490 so i've kind of found 
I mean, the benefit of our job is we get to try so many bikes. We can really more bikes than most consumers would ever be able to, to try at least as the number of hours we put on them. So, um, yeah, for me, I've kind of found what I'm happy with right now. Um, advantages versus disadvantages. It just feels like it fits me correctly. Like I don't, I don't feel like I'm held back in tighter stuff and I can still feel you know comfortable at higher speed. So I think the overall fit, but again, this is that part of that geometry discussion where everything's changed. So the steeper C2 bangles, all that stuff makes it so it feels pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. I was going to say it can't happen in a vacuum if you just happen to go to a 490 reach, but the rest of the bike doesn't change. Like if you try and upsize on a 2016 bike or 2015 bike, yeah. it won't work. No, like a, a 490 reach with a 72 degree seat angle, I wouldn't be able to reach the handlebars, I don't think. I would be uncomfortable. Yeah, I was thinking it's like should. the early 29ers. When they first put 29-inch wheels on older bikes, they sucked. They weren't fun. If you change this one variable, it's just not going to work. Same with wheelbase, reach, any of that. So I think, of course, if you change one number unnaturally, it isn't going to be ideal till the rest of the bike evolves around it. Yeah, I I think as long as you're in the ballpark, there's no real right or wrong either. I, I'm 5'10 if I stand up straight, and I'm comfy on bikes from 450 to 490 is pushing it. 490 is pretty long. Uh, but I also live in a place where it's very steep and it could be fast and rough. And so it'd be able for me to be able to ride a shorter bike, like a 450 or a 460 on a certain trail, and then ride a bike that's 470 to 490, it really underlines the difference. And I think the most negative trait of that shorter reach is that the bike tends to be more nervous and sensitive to weight transfer, Casimir, mainly my weight flipping over the handlebar. Um, you know, when you hit those like sort of like momentum stoppers that they, they don't actually stop you, but they kind of just slow you down a bit on a shorter bike that pitches your weight forward. And that's a lot more noticeable when the, when the reach is short. Um, you also have more traction, more predictability, I think when it's steep or slippery. Um, and the most noticeable positive trait of that short bike, it's the cliche cas of it being more playful, but I think on the other hand, I mean, I get on a long bike and I feel super confident. And in turn, because I'm more confident, I'm taking more chances chances, and maybe playing around more. So it's, again, I don't think there is a right or wrong, you know? All right, Kaz, earlier in the intro, we talked a little bit about what kind of mountain biker you wanted to be and why. And we're going to get into that discussion now. Now, you you joked about being an all-mountain rider earlier, and I wish that term was used more often. Um I feel like it sort of describes all mountain is sort of like triathlete of mountain biking though, Kaz, like you're sort of like, okay at a bunch of things, but you're not like really good at one thing. Would you, would you agree? I mean, that's, that kind of describes me. So that's kind of accurate. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's kind of nice to be able to be well-rounded at a, a reasonably high level, you know, yeah. like it's nice to be able to go out for a cross country ride or a, a downhill ride or a, an all mountain ride or do some dirt jumps or some pump track or be able to do all of the different you know, aspects of the sport, I think it's kind of a nice goal to, to strive for. It doesn't lock you into one, you know, like, oh, I only ride downhill. I can never ride uphill. I think that limits what you get to do out on a bike. Yeah. So my question then for you would be, you live in Bellingham. Do you think that you are an all mountainish type rider because of where you live and the people that you ride with? Or do you think that was sort of like an inevitable place that you were going to end up as a mountain biker? Um, yeah, it's kind of a product of both. We could go through the history of my biking history. Like when I started out, I grew up in the East coast, started out 
uh, cross country riding because that's all that I knew. I'd, I'd heard about downhill, and this is like in the '90s, like late '90s. But downhill seemed scary to me. I think I was more of a wuss. <laughs> Still, everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was you know I didn't. There's only like one guy that rode downhill at the shop I worked at. Everybody else, a bunch of cross country nerds, is like, oh, I'm going to do this. This seems cool. I like the idea of you know riding around and suffering and. So I did that. And then when I moved to Colorado, I started realizing that, you know, I was still doing cross country rides, but then the whole free ride thing was starting at that time. So even in Colorado, we were getting magazines and videos from Canada and seeing people huck off stuff, riding rock moves. And that started appealing to me. So I kind of, I bought a bigger bike and, but I still pedaled the big bike. I've always been the idiot that rides the downhill bike or the free ride bike on cross country rides. So I've been confused for a lot how, of stuff. How, how many bikes have you had with the double seat post, uh, quickly oh, yeah. terrible Definitely had a couple of those yeah the, the titech knock scoper and i've had the dropper post on the specialized demo or whatever because i wanted all the travel and and but i think yeah i've obviously been on this whole path to what i where i am now as yeah, like you said an all-mountain rider but and some of that was friends like you know at the time if friends were into free riding i think some of it for me came from skiing like when i moved to colorado i skied a ton of skiing you know at least 100 days a year and becoming a better skier and getting my eyes kind of like I was into skiing super hard stuff. And then when it came summertime, I was like, oh, I want to do the same with riding. Like I want to ride super hard stuff. So I think that's so influenced by something outside the sport, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think maybe that like turned my adrenaline on a little bit. And I wasn't like, oh, downhill's scary anymore. I was like, oh, downhill's probably a lot like skiing. So yeah, yeah I think my skiing influenced my mountain biking back then at least. And now it's kind of, now I bike more than I ski. Do you, do you think that you would be the type of rider that you are today, even if you didn't work at pink bike normal job normal chasmer yeah definitely like even before working at pink bike i still had like a pedal bike and then a bigger bike or at least i tried to or one bike that could do everything but i still wanted to be able to pedal it so yeah okay. yeah i think i've i'm just a really all mountain rider through and through through the core through. <laughs> <laughs> hardcore all mountain <laughs> hardcore all mountain <laughs> that make it the hcam yeah i could get like a chest tattoo it says like hcam I hope you, you just, do. I'll pay for it, Kaz. I was going to say, I'll pay for it. <laughs> Pink bike, yeah. Pink bike used yeah. to pay for tattoos back in I know, the day. I pay for one of my tattoos, so they could be paying Same. for it. <laughs> we can talk, we can talk at Christmas time. Okay. Kaz, if, if we go way back to 20 something year old Kaz, early twenties, when you think back to that, did you have a, a certain type of rider that you wanted to be? Were you like striving train? Not, maybe not training isn't the right word. But you were striving towards a certain type of of being a certain type of rider. See, was it a conscious decision? Not necessarily. Kind of. Uh, no, I think I was still just kind of like riding my bike a lot everywhere. But you know, we, same thing. I was kind of watching downhill races. I remember going to a, watch a World Cup in Durango. I think and said Cedric saw Cedric Gracia and Missy just being wild. I was like, oh, that's crazy. And then I don't know if I necessarily wanted to be like them, but I kind of just kind of just like floated around in the mountain bike world, I think just kind of like taking little bits in for inspiration from everywhere. But I think a lot was, again, just had to do with my friend group. Like we had a really good group of friends that would go shuttle and just, we just rode mountain bikes. Like we've just been doing whatever we, we could, I guess. Yeah. Hey, Alicia, if, if we go back to when you started riding, first of all, what, what year was that? And then I want to know, were you inspired by a certain type of rider? I know you started riding more recently than Casimir and I, and obviously the environment was quite a bit different. Um, you were exposed to different things. Was that a factor in you wanted to become a certain type of rider? Kind of. So I started mountain biking probably around 2012. 
I rode super casually before that, a tiny bit, in that like I owned a bike and sometimes took it on dirt. I skied a lot growing up, and it seemed kind of similar. It just made sense as something that I could pretend was skiing that wasn't skiing. I signed up to join a Nike League before really knowing how to mountain bike. I thought I could. I showed up to their practice things and learned really quickly that I could not mountain bike. Were you put off? Were you like, hey, this sport's not for me. Maybe maybe this isn't for me. Uh, yes, but I had tried really hard to get onto the team. So I went to this different school. I was in independent study for high school, like didn't really go to school and had to send basically a bunch of emails to be like, hey, I really want to mountain bike race. Please let me on your team. I started racing. I showed up to the race, realized I'm super competitive. And so started riding a ton just to try to race more. And So this was 2012, 2013-ish, mm-hmm. you said. There was plenty of fun-looking riding happening and some decent-ish bikes then, given the time. I'm mm-hmm. curious as to why you gravitated towards uh, that racing as opposed to maybe another type of riding. So I knew like three people who raced cross-country. They were the only mountain bikers I knew. I didn't come from a family that mountain biked. And I was also in Marin County, California, where we rode up fire roads and back down fire roads. It was objectively not fun. So, how, I mean, just for the people listening, Alicia, between this time she's describing in 2012, 2013, and then to sort of 2018-ish, 2019, like you were a, or are a successful enduro racer like you've had top 20 ews results in open like you're a very talented fast rider at a fairly really side of the sport really obsessive <laughs> yeah, was, like what was that path like yeah so then i moved to montana to go to school mostly because i had no better plan and it sounded cool so i came up here about seven years ago i met some people who mountain biked I had my 29er hardtail before they figured out how to make 29er hardtails fun. And these guys were like, hey, come ride with us. I was like, yeah, cool. I mountain bike and just crashed my way down these unsanctioned trails that are now pretty much my favorite place on the planet. I'm curious as to how much of a factor those early days of cross-country riding were in your enduro racing later on. And even today, just having that background, is that a factor at all today? Maybe it might be that you just know that that's not how you want to ride, or maybe that helps you realize that being fitter is a, is a huge plus in the enduro world. How does that, how's it help, if at all? I think, yeah, definitely getting into cross-country racing early on teaches you some sort of structure for training and how to have goals in the bike world and then meet them. And I also do want to kind of talk up the Nike leagues. That is so cool. They're actually incredibly fun. I think my personal approach, which was out of like self-punishment and self-hatred, was not necessarily <laughs> the healthiest way to approach it. But cross-country racing is awesome. High school cross-country racing is incredible. And I think, honestly, the best thing that's ever happened in my life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been a really great influence. It's not... For me, in the long run, I'm not going to be a cross-country racer again, I think. But it is really incredible, and I think it sets a lot of people in a good direction. 
So that was that was nine or ten years ago. Nine or ten years from now, if you had to take a guess, what discipline of mountain biking are you going to be doing? Town jibs. I think that's my new I thing. <laughs> Town jibs. <laughs> oh yeah. So, yeah. See, Levy and I did this before, and you got you missed out on like the she's urban like doing a reverse scene. Levy, uh-huh. <laughs> literally doing a reverse Levy. <laughs> like he's now a downcountryist, uh-huh. mm-hmm. <laughs> and he started in freeride hucking. So we can expect yeah. Alicia to be buying. And she is building up the world's heaviest bike in her mind right now. Yes, yeah. yes. So so soon she's going to be on like a Kona Stab Deluxe. Just the skate park. Cuddled. Yeah, at the yeah. skate park, tracking mud in everywhere. <laughs> I went to the skate park last doing week. Doing no footers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you're on the path. It's, it's starting. Yeah. <laughs> All the mountain bike paths are the same. You can just do them in different order. So, yeah, you're going to be doing the skate park thing. I mean, the dirt jumps kind of come from that. Some Definitely some hucks to flat off of like mm-hmm. stairs. Pedal wheelies, mm-hmm. big pedal wheelies. Yeah, lots of wheelies. You might bring skinnies back to those trails you're talking about. There's not a lot of trees to yeah, work but for that. Where you make are, sure but that they're super unnecessary skinnies. skinnies. <laughs> yeah. S- super skinnies, but on the ground, not over anything. Hey, Brian, what kind of mountain biker are you? And how, how the heck did you end up here? I know you've got an interesting past that includes free ride video parts. No. Brian's from the internet. He grew up in the internet. He's a Dude. troll. <laughs> True. 100% true. I've I've managed to like commercialize my uh my trolliness. T- let's 10 years ago, what what word would you use? What kind of mountain biker were you? Uh 10 years ago I was a mountain biker again. Um I didn't mountain bike for a long time through school, but 10 years ago I was just just a regular regular mountain biker, but not I don't know, I was just coming back into I could finally afford mountain bikes again and was working at a bike shop again and and there's not Let's go back to early brian then i like the early brian that was early probably, brian free ride ruckus on the on nsmb and talking like, shit and yeah, hanging on the whistler parking lot and throwing yeah. beer cans at people <laughs> accurate i would say that pretty much from the very first time i mount, started mountain biking i've pretty much just wanted to do whatever wade simmons was doing like whatever I mean, stage of yeah. Wade's career or life was at, like that's what I wanted to do. You know, I started watching, I think NSX2 is the first mountain bike video I ever watched and uh, and Shift and all those. And I remember thinking like, I could do that shit. Yeah. Like I do things that big. To be fair, back then, I think a lot of people, a lot of us mm-hmm. were doing stuff that was... I mean, pretty close to what was being done in the videos. Mm-hmm. We used to watch stuff. They were filming those videos in North Vancouver, yep. you know, an hour away from where I lived. We would watch the stuff and then we would go out and spend all day falling off of skinnies on circus or whatever, and then drive home with our broken ankles and try again, you know, the next time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of what kind of mountain biker or mountain biking did I want to be, like what I identify with, it was just, yeah, it was wade and i'd say today it's still probably wade he's going on big epics kooky rides doesn't give a shit what anybody else thinks and yeah that's still kind of where i'm at yeah so inspired inspired by wade not free riders not cross country just wade (laughs) yeah i I will i've I've never i've was never really into the cross country scene until really the last five six years um, maybe partially just because it got more accessible in terms of viewing, um, and the our local XC scenes weren't better. that good. Say what? The bikes have gotten so much better. The bikes have gotten better. The the courses have gotten better. I think also just the coverage has gotten so much better. I can connect with the racers 
more. I don't know. I, yeah. I, for some reason, I'm just more emotionally invested in XC than 10 years ago or yeah. 20 years ago for that matter. I think it's because you're older now. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm old. I, I just want to have like, yeah, the equipment and the bare minimum of fitness and like honestly the time to go for the occasional five hour kooky ride and come home all wrecked and put my feet up. Yeah. So I think all of us can say that we're kind of just like mountain bikers. We could say all mountain, we could say trail, whatever. But I think a huge factor in that being possible is the modern bikes. You know, 10 years ago, Kaz and Brian and Alicia, if you were a cross-country rider, you had a terrible bike. You had a terrible bike. It was terrible. And if you were a downhiller, it was also terrible. Absolutely Mm -hmm. terrible, but in a different way. (laughs) Um, And all mountain bikes back then, I mean, Kaz, they were just bad at everything. If you ask me, they weren't really decent at much, to be honest. They felt like steep handling cross-country bikes with too much travel. Um, But nowadays, I think we can have that just mountain bike, you know, that 130, the 140, the 150, whatever, that you can ride in all these places and you can go to the Whistler Bike Park and you could be a downhiller for the day and you could do a seven-hour epic where you pedal really hard and when you get home, you look at all your times on the climbs and and that kind of stuff. I think the bikes themselves and that evolution has been a massive factor in the evolution as us of us as riders. Do you, do you think that's fair to say? I don't think so. Oh, yeah, I think I would still Ooh. be doing what I would be doing now without like bikes are sweet, but like even though my job is to talk about all the bikes and all the stuff, I actually don't care that much. Like mm-hmm. I was happy in all those bikes I had twenty years ago. Like you just I didn't know any better. But yeah, but I was happy, so it doesn't really matter. Like I don't think that. I don't think the bikes have changed me. They've made the experience a little bit better. I'd say it was like, you don't have to worry about things breaking as much and they're lighter and all these, you know, better that way. But I don't think that I'm having any more or less fun than I was having back then on those bikes. Mm -hmm. I wonder if our differing opinions come down to basically the type of bike that we like to ride. Um, I guess my point would be that because I'm often on a shorter travel bike than you, I feel like those bikes have become more capable so I can ride my XC bike sort of like an all mountainy thing and only get hurt once a month, which was, I mean, it was three times a month years ago. (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. Like I ride, I think you think I ride differently than I do because you ride 200 millimeter travel e-bikes every day. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no <laughs> i'm just joking everybody could, i know yeah we could do the breakdown i, I did the, it's like i ride e-bikes once or twice a week and then i ride like enduro bike oh see it used to only be once a week now it's once or twice it's a creepy well, I, have to, I have to test it yeah. i can't wait to our e-bike podcast kaz has been begging me for it everybody yeah that's that's fine but there's still five other days of the week so if we break down those other five days then we have like two days, two or three days on like the enduro bike. And then there's two more days. So that's on like the stump jumper or something like that, which that's a 130, 140 bike with. That's a long travel trail bike. No, it's not. (laughs) It weighs 27 pounds. It's got 34 on it. And here's the difference. I just put scary tires on it. I I think he's got a point that you're, that the light trail bike has gotten exponentially better. over the last 10 years and has allowed people who have a light trail bike to ride a way larger range of of to still just be a mountain bike whereas 10 years ago or 15 years ago if you wanted a 25 pound bike well you only had one choice of head tube angle and it sucked (laughs) 
And it was right, dead. But all this, I thought we were talking about why we're mountain bikers. Like I was happy yeah, with that, the mountain biking. The bikes are fine, but the, putting that aside, I was always just riding everything I wanted to on whatever bike I had kicking around. And I would just figure it out. Like now it is easier to figure it out. It's kind of like fat skis versus skinny skis. Like now everybody can hop on fat skis and enjoy powder skiing where before you kind of had to suffer a little more. So it's kind of easier now to hop into the sweet spot of the sport and enjoy it, which is, mm-hmm. it's better. But for, you know, people that enjoy suffering like Alicia and myself and Levy, I think we all <laughs> not had good Brian yeah. conspicuously absent in that list. <laughs> I don't think you enjoy suffering as much. <laughs> not as much. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, you're more we're le- you're less likely to self-harm than us. So yes. It's a yeah. I do think a bike totally facilitates <laughs> what kind of rider you are though. I started racing Enduros because I got a full suspension bike and felt like I had no excuse mm-hmm. not to then. Yeah, that doesn't I don't, sense too. I, I don't wouldn't think really I would have signed up on hardtail. I think it was like I started riding trails that were better on a full suspension and I got a full suspension. I eventually learned how to use the dropper posts that came on that bike. Then I signed up for an enduro just because I had the bike and was like, you know. You changed everything else to match your bike rather than changing your bike to match your ideal. That's very yeah, interesting. That's a good one too. Yeah. I guess, yeah. A little bit of I each. Guess we, could, we didn't really talk. Yeah. And like enduro racing, I think kind of became popular because it did match the bikes that were around. So it's, mm-hmm. it's like a chicken and the egg thing maybe. That Definitely, yeah. Because I think if you see a sport you can do because you have the gear already, you're more likely to do it where... Before enduro, you had to decide if you're going to be a downhill or a cross country yeah. rider, and then then People you're don't have like, to oh, decide anymore, Kaz. Right? No, yeah, you're they, right. They buy a 150 bike, and it doesn't suck that much on the climbs or at all on the climbs, and it's super capable on the way downs. Yeah, people don't have this to say like I'm a trail rider or I'm well, they do, but I'm a cross country racer or I'm an enduro racer. I think people just buy like a 150 or a 160 and do all the things. A lot of times. Yeah, I agree. It's cool. Yeah, it's cool that we're in a spot where you can do that. Do you? I'm curious what you guys think that sort of the the 12 year olds of today are aspiring to be. Is it just like I want to be Fabio Widmer and that's it? Please let me purchase all of the t-shirts or like yeah. what's the here here in Bellingham? We're obviously in like a an inter- and crazy mm-hmm. like mountain bike bubble in this town because it's it's wild how many people ride. But the the junior like the junior girls and boys like it's they're so into racing and so into just everything mountain biking. It's pretty wild to see people that addicted and to be able to like fuel their addiction so heavily. It's like, you know, when, when all of us were kids, I feel like a lot of us didn't have as much mountain biking around us, but then watching the next generation that grows up in a mountain bike centric town, it's wild. They want to be yeah pro racers or pro free riders. Like all the, the little girls all want to be Hannah Bergman or Jill Kittner. And it's pretty impressive what they're already doing at like 12 or 13 years old. They want to hit the biggest jump lines on the mountain and, it's you need to show them the state of the sports survey on athlete pay. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just crushed their wah, dreams. Wah, wah. <laughs> hey kids, come here. Look at this survey. <laughs> no. But I think this this future of the sport, at least in towns like where I am, and I know other towns up in you know where mountain biking has become accepted, it's a it's looking pretty bright as far as the juniors go. They can do whatever they want, basically. Kaz, you touched on something earlier that I want to expand on a bit. It's versatility. When I was younger. I thought that I needed to just do basically one thing. And maybe it goes back to what we were talking about with bikes and how it was like very purpose-driven bikes that we were all riding. But now I feel like I want to be able to go for that huge XC ride and I want to be able to go to the Whistler bike park and hang on the gnarly trails. I want to ride all the things. I even want to ride my curly bar bike a ton. 
would you would you say that you're sort of going that direction too? Maybe without the curly bars, but how important is versatility, and is it more important than it used to be for you? Uh, no, I think it kind of goes back to I feel like I've just been a consistent rider, like always. I've never just gone all in on one aspect of the sport. I think just because I think that probably goes back to my cross country roots, where I've always liked the long, super pedally rides. Those 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 have always been there. How gnarly the rides are is probably what's changed. Where yeah. You know, like 16-year-old me wouldn't, wouldn't be able to get down the stuff that I ride now on a short travel bike, basically. Like, I think that it's been nice to develop skills in the downhill side of things, the free ride side of things, and then use those skills with the short travel bikes and be able to go on a, a 10,000 vert ride that has a lot of pretty, you know, difficult features, but you don't really think twice of it because you've, you've ridden them so much. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's literally the ideal ride, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Alicia? Is versatility something that's important to you? Is it something that you think about at all? Or are you more concentrating on, I want to get down that hill as fast as possible on my enduro race bike? Yeah, I think versatility is really important just in being a mountain biker in general, rather than being specifically a downhill mountain biker or an uphill mountain biker. Any ride's going to be better if you have the capability for it. Like I would like to be fit so I can get uphill and have it be efficient and pleasant. I also want to be good at downhill skills so that I can actually ride cool places and do all the rides that I want to do. So I want to have the skills to cover it all rather than only be stuck doing the thing that I've developed some skill at. I wonder if being versatile is something that happens or wanting to be versatile is something that happens as we all get older and have less courage and more injuries. Maybe one thing, I was just trying to think about my sort of being attached to like whatever Wade's doing. That's where I'm at. But like there are other people in a similar thing, like Kurt Voorhees doesn't fit any of the boxes that we're talking about, Yeah. but holy shit, that guy is, uh, I think we talked about it in the hero podcast. Like he is an absolute hero of mine for riding. And like, if I want to, if I was like to identify with somebody, it's like, he's on that list for sure. You know what really gets me about Kurt is the enthusiasm Mm -hmm. that comes from his riding. Like, I know that I'm not going out there and riding up the side of a chain link fence and doing a tail whip off of my intense taser. (laughs) I know that's not happening, but he just looks like he's having so much fun when he's doing those things that it makes me want to go out and fuck around on the bike. A few weeks ago, I was on a ride on my own and I stopped And I went and rode something three or four times, which for me is not something that happens very often. I was like, I was like debating whether or not I should stop and try and hit something again. And I was like, Kurt would do it. Yeah. We all need to do that more. I think we all need to session stuff more. Yeah. What about like goals? I think that's one thing we didn't really touch on is now that we're all at this point, we decided that we're, you know, riding for so many years and old and washed up or whatever, but I still feel super motivated to ride. And I don't mm-hmm. like, do you still feel that Levy? Like the inherent decide, you know, like you go out and ride, like I want to ride. I, yeah. Like, do you force yourself to ride? Or do you still feel like I want to try to do this? Uh, I mean, I'm going to be honest. It comes and goes, um, depending on, you know, same as with you and other people with injuries and stuff like that. If it's been a rough year with injuries, I may not do a ton of rides, but I mean, this year, I think, Kaz, I have 91 rides or something this year already. Like, it's been a great year of riding. And I'm, I've loved bike, loving bikes more than ever. Um, and I think goals is a big part of that. And, and for me, fitness has always been 
a big part of that. I like I like being fit and it's a goal of mine, so I have to ride lots. They counteract the Tim Hortons and Monster Energy also. Casimir, uh, if you want to be a rocket engine, you need to put in rocket fuel and that's Tim Hortons and Monster. <laughs> Maybe Nino wouldn't need that e-bike if he <laughs> yeah. they had Tim Hortons in Switzerland or wherever he lives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a Swedish fish and Oreos diet lately. It's pretty oh, good. Nice. Yes. Brian, what's what's a riding goal of yours for this year, or do you have one? Oh man. You know, I'm going to go with stereotypical new dad. Like I'm just, if I can get a couple of big rides in, I'm so happy. I'm, I'm, uh, right now my life is very different than a few years ago. And, and, uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of small rides, but it's very rare that I get to go out for four or five hours. Um, yes, (laughs) it's been, it's been, it's been 10 years of riding for you now. Do you set out with a goal? Like at the beginning of this year, are you like, well, this year I would like to X, like do something. And is that a factor in your motivation at all and the the rider that you are today? I think a little bit. It's not my main motivator. Like as much as I talked about my weird path to mountain biking, I do love biking. And so it's just fun. But Mm. I do think about things I want to improve. That's why I'm a town jibber now. I think that's a really great way to... (laughs) isolate skills and really identify weak points and what you want to work on rather than just point your bike down a trail and go fast and call it good. I how think are those foofanoos going for you? How are the how what's? <laughs> I don't, maybe I didn't pronounce it right. Foofanoo? <laughs> yeah, I said it right. <laughs> Should I Google the word? Probably. Yeah. 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 We could send you like lingo and then you can learn all these things. We'll give you like a jib of the week thing. BMX lingo. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've been working on nose bonks a lot lately. I've decided the nose bonk it's the most fun thing ever that I didn't used to do them. Kaz, it is about those little things. You know, I, I, it's about the little, like the little nose bogs that like maybe a better rider or you can't even see on video. Like we're like six inches off the ground or, or like that one kick-ass corner that you get or the one nice manual. It's those little things that make the kick-ass rides great. Yeah. Oh, I just thought about, you know what the cool, the other day I was thinking of Wade Simmons been, since he obviously is the reason all of us ride still. And yes. in the collective, he's going down this log, kind of skinny, like a bigger log, and he gets off it with his rear wheel first. He's kind of does a little nose manual and then hops off. You guys remember that mm-hmm. part? Yes. Mm-hmm. That, in my mind, I was like, that's the coolest thing. And I don't know. It's still just like I was on a big log thing. I was like, oh yeah, this is like Wade Simmons. So yeah, Did I think it? Wade is still, <laughs> somehow Wade is making us ride more still. <laughs> Thanks, Wade. Hell, Wade. <laughs> Can yeah, you do that? I don't know how he's doing it. Yeah, I can yeah, do it okay. now. But I don't know if I could back then. I don't know. Turns out all this practice, if you just practice like a ridiculous amount, then you might get slightly better. I've been practicing for 25 years. I haven't gotten any better, Kaz. Well, I just said slightly. It's not, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, everybody. Let's get to Comment Gold and wrap up podcast number 60. Our first one, this is from 2.6 kilohertz. kilohertz. Yeah, I got it. I had to think about it for a sec. His comment is, this is on the Rocky Mountain Growler review. He says, Growler? Seriously? Every company should consult the Urban Dictionary before naming their products. I'm going to let you guys go to the Urban Dictionary, type in Growler, and have a look at uh, what Rocky Mountain Spike is named after. <laughs> hey, Brian, you were actually at Rocky when they named this bike. Did nobody yeah. check? Yeah, I-, I was in the marketing department, and I specifically brought this up and uh other people decided that that was no big deal but obviously i don't know it's it's funny i guess that are i will say that people in the uk and australia were especially amused and we'll let 
We'll let you guys Urban Dictionary that and find out why. We're not going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. appropriate. It can't be. It can't be easy to name a bike with. No, it sucks. Yeah. Naming a bike sucks way more than people would think. It's the worst. Do you think that's why companies a lot of times go with that like terrible naming scheme where they just like put three letters and some numbers and maybe like a period in there and that kind of like oh. the Vetus, you know, like stuff like that. Like, I, I if I ever had a bike company. Either the names would be so outlandish that nobody would ever have to like worry about trademarking or anything like that, or they would just be the Audi school of naming things, just yep. like letter and number. What I hate though is when brands mix their like metric and imperial, or you don't know if it's a travel thing or an intended use it's, thing, or like you get so confused by their stupid names. I feel like mixing mixing measurement standards is the standard for the mountain bike industry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like we do everything in pounds, but grams, but inches yeah. for some measurements. And, and yeah. we're guilty just like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, next one. Next comment gold. This is from Whitebird Feathers. This is on the state of the sport athlete pay article that's on the main page right now. He says, the gender pay gap isn't real in mountain biking. Men choose high paying disciplines like slope style and cross country. But women, on the other hand, choose lower playing disciplines like women's slope style and women's cross country. My blood pressure rose the first half of that entire comment. And absolutely. And it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's very Good clever. job, White Bird Feathers. You got us. You got us. <laughs> and our last comment, Gold. This is from Kyle Loves DH. This is on the women's free ride article. He says, she plus free ride equals she ride. All right, everybody, that is it for episode 60. We hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Make sure to let us know in the comments below what type of mountain biker are you and how the heck did you end up there? Was it a result of your surroundings, where you lived and the people you ride with? Or did you watch a video and decide that's the mountain biker that I want to be? Let us know how you ended up being an all-mountain rider in the comments. <laughs> and we'll see you next episode. Yeah.